Some say the world is all substance, and the void is impossible. Some say the world is all void, and substance is impossible. I exist on the rack stretched between them, unable to deny that I am a substance, yet returning always to embrace the void. This void quite calming actually. It's like this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void trying to reach the new story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 128 of Embrace the Void, where the metaphysics is so controversial and yet so brave. I'm your host, Aaron, and this week we're back on the nature of the self train. We are headed to check out a serious account of the self as a substance. So before you slam that cancel button, better make sure your objections have substance too. My guest this week is Dunica O'Connell a postdoc at University of Fribo in Switzerland, or Fribourg, I'm not sure how you pronounce that one actually, uh, where he does work on metaphysics of the self. Uh, Danica, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, the void. <laughs> Thank you for giving me lots of names that I fail to pronounce. Um, that's always uh, quality content for our listeners. Um, so welcome you sent me you got in contact because you have a research project that you're working on that is very much in our wheelhouse and so i'm very excited to have you on um to chat about this um and there's a lot of meat on these bones so i want to just kind of dive right into the um research project by just laying out the hypothesis to start with so um, as I understand it, you're y'all are working on an argument, or, or so. First of all, you're working on trying to systematize an account of the nature of the self, um, and you, your account of the self is something like it is a substance. It's distinct from its body, but necessarily embodied in its body. Uh, it is essentially a subject. Um, is that are those the main points? Are they well? Is that the way you'd put them? Is there anything you'd add there before we sort of start start at no. them one after another? No, that's um, those are those are at least some of the most important points. So yeah, so just just a bit of background. So mm -hmm. I'm the the project is led by um, Professor Martina Niederromelin, who's a professor at the University of Fribourg, and there's two other project members. There's myself and another postdoc, uh, Julien Bunyon. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, so we have this overall framework and as you say, it's, it's, it's trying to work out a, trying to systematically think through, um, the metaphysics of the self in, in the terms you've outlined. So one, one thing to say straight away is that, um, in discussions on the self, there's a, a fair amount of, of, um, ambiguity as to what selves are, because some people, when they hear the word self, 
they associate that with something which is maybe a rational agent or maybe it's a, a something which has a certain moral value or it's something which is stands in certain social or intersubjective relations with other selves and of course um those are all perfectly um, important um, topics and they're perf it's perfectly reasonable to understand cells in that way. But the notion of the self we're working with is much more minimal to start with, at least. It's the idea um, that the self is a subject of experiences. So the basic thought here is that there are conscious experiences where in particular phenomenally conscious experiences. So experiences such that there's something it's like to have them. It's there's something it's like to have a headache or to taste coffee or mm -hmm. to look at a sunrise. Right. Yeah. And, and then the thought is that um, each of these experiences belongs to a subject and the subject is whatever it is, which has that experience in the sense of undergoing it or living through it. So the subject of the headache is the one who feels pain. The subject mm -hmm. um, is, is the one who tastes the, um, the coffee, for instance. So understood Great. in that way, the notion of a self is, is much more minimal because it, it at least leaves open the possibility that selves need not be rational. Mm -hmm. um, they need, it's, it's, it leaves open the question of whether they must have moral value. It leaves open the question of whether they must recognize other subjects and engage with them intersubjectively or be social. So it's a very, very minimal um, starting point. And then the thought is that we will give, we'll try to work out systematically a metaphysical account of, of mm -hmm. the subject of experiences. Yeah, that's really great um, because I think this this issue is sort of front and center in a lot of people's minds right now. Um, the issue of consciousness, which, like um, the self, is a kind of cluster concept, right? It's there are a bunch of, as you say, different versions of consciousness and the self that are often being conflated, but that there is this idea of a phenomenally conscious subject of experience that seems to be sort of stuck in the craw of like science and philosophy and like refuses to be sort of functionally folded into our modern understanding of the world um and so i think there is a lot of really important work and that like all of this work is very pressing because of the rise of artificial intelligence and concerns about sentient artificial entities so i think that's really great work and and just i'm curious what uh what background just briefly like do you come from that folds you that brings you into this particular project what do you feel like what are you bringing to this table right so i um, I studied. I did my. I studied philosophy as an undergraduate, and I did my master's in Cork, in Ireland, which is where I'm from. Um, and then I did my PhD in Durham, in England. And I did my PhD with. Um, there were two supervisors. There was Matthew Ratcliffe, who was mm -hmm. someone coming from the the phenomenological uh, tradition. So nowadays he works um, extensively in the philosophy of psychiatry, but with, from a mm -hmm. phenomenological background, I suppose, Merleau-Ponty, Heidegger, and, and ultimately Husserl. He was one of my supervisors, and that was the, the kind of stuff I was interested in primarily when I went to Durham in the first place. But my other supervisor was uh, Jonathan Lowe, who some of your mm -hmm. listeners might might know, E.J. Lowe, a very uh, prominent uh, metaphysician and philosopher of mind who um, passed away, unfortunately, a, a few years ago. And it was really he, working um, with him. Sorry, he comes up on. in your references as one of the uh, defenders of the substance position that we'll talk about in just a second, right? Right, exactly. So it was, it was, it was reading his work and interacting with him that got me interested in metaphysics and mm -hmm. in the, the analytic sense of metaphysics, and also in more directly in the question of the nature of the self. So 
my my PhD was on it was on the relation between phenomenology and the philosophy of mind, and I've subsequently I've worked on other metaphysical topics. And but mm-hmm. in the last couple of years, I've been based at Freiburg working on consciousness and the self. So my background is a, it's a little bit kind of roundabout. Um, Mm-hmm. Because I started off being interested in phenomenology, particularly Husserlian phenomenology. I then got interested in metaphysics, and I'm now focusing on the metaphysics of the self. It's interesting that you would distinguish metaphysics from Husserlian phenomenology, because I would I feel like they are sort of they're they're just trying to work on similar projects, but they just come from very different directions at it. Um, but yeah, this so this uh, this question about substance right i think is the really important thing i think we want to start with here and it sounds like you've you've done a bunch of work on that which is uh great because it sounds like going back to your first the first part of your hypothesis that each subject is a substance this this sounds basically like substance dualism right the idea that there are um physical substances and that there are then subjective substances of some sort how would you is that basically what y'all are going for? And are you sort of trying to rehabilitate a position that a lot of folks think is um, out of favor at the moment? Well, I mean, it, it is out of favor at the moment. So yeah, okay. a lot of folks, a lot of folks are right on that. Um, so <laughs> I tend to agree, there, but you know, I like to leave open the idea that maybe there's a silent majority of Cartesians out there. I mean, most normal non-philosophers are kind of probably some form of dualist. So. Um, that's possibly right, actually. Yeah. Maybe. So there's so so, but if it's a silent majority, it's a very very silent one. Um, so my personally, I would say that I'm not wholly committed to substance dualism, but I'm certainly substance dualism curious. And <laughs> but but we can start maybe. But but it, I think the substance bit and the dualism bit are different commitments or different different paths we can go down. So the substance mm-hmm. bit, which you asked about, so there's a, a f- there's a long, long discussion in metaphysics about, about the notion of a substance, what, what counts as a substance, and what conditions something must meet in order to be a substance. But in the, in the present context, what I'm really interested in are something like a, a core number of claims about the self and its relation to its experiences. So the first of these is that the subject of experiences cannot be reduced to its experiences or properties of its experiences or relations between its experiences. So there are a number of views out there which say that there are subjects of experience, but we can reduce them to, for example, experiences organized or collected in a certain way. So well, y'all, y'all refer to these as bundle theory kind of arguments, right? right? Like a Humean view. But, Do you want to really quickly explain like why you, what bundle theory is and why you think that it's inferior or, or like um, has issues that you, you make you lean, make, make you substance curious? So there's a, there's a couple of different versions of bundle theory in the market, but the, 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 the most well known is, is the one that's um, often attributed to Hume, as you say. So this is the idea that the self is, it's a collection of, particular experiences that are bound together or organized in a certain way. So the idea is that, um, you know, if, if you're giving a, an ontological analysis of you as a subject, you would describe your different experiences. So you have an, an oral experience, you listen to me talk, you have a visual experience, you have tactile experiences and so on. So you have these experiences and these experiences stand in a certain relation to each other. And you are the bundle or that collection of those experiences. So that's that that's the Humean bundle view. As I said, there are there are other versions right. available for the for the discerning buyer, but the Humean view is the, is, is the best known one. So the the first thought in saying that the the self is a substance is that the self cannot be reduced 
to experiences organized in a certain way. Um, so it's so it's so it's it's basically saying mm-hmm. ruling out views like the bundle theory. But I, before I kind of back to the bundle theory, maybe I could go through the other kind of what I see as the core commitments of sure. yeah, absolutely. the view of itself as a substance. So first of all, it's not reducible to experiences. The second thought is that the self or the subject is ontologically prior to its experiences. And what I mean by this is that we can say what experiences are by reference to the subject. So the mm-hmm. thought is that for, for an experience to occur, so for, so for a particular visual experience to occur, just is for a certain subject to be modified in a certain way. It is for that abandon your phenomenological uh, roots there, haven't you? Right. Right. Very much so. Yes. Which is which, which goes back. You know, when, when you said, "What's the difference between metaphysics and, yeah, and phenomenology?" I'm still. I'm still. I still. I, I still really like um, Husserlian phenomenology, and I still. I, I. I like to think that I. That I'm. Um, um, my work is relevant to it in some way, but certainly the main. The basic ideas we're looking at at the moment um, really are antithetical to to um, to a lot a great deal of what of what a certain phenomenology says. So we're very or I'm quite comfortable with, with, with thinking about experiences in this way that they are modifications of a pre-existing entity. Yeah, um, for modifications. Um, Sorry, go on. No, I just want to jump in and just mention for folks who want to hear more about this phenomenology stuff, we did a Gestalt episode a little while ago that's worth checking out where we talked about the the opposite view that, like, the self is secondary to the phenomenal experiences and that the phenomenal experiences themselves are the ontological foundation of the universe. Um, sorry, go ahead. No, no. Um, so so that, that's exactly the kind of view that we're, we're contrasting ourselves with. And mm-hmm. so we're saying that it's kind of a self-first view, as it were. And and one way to cash that out is to say that um, we can say what experiences are. We can state their essence by, 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 by reference to their subjects. And furthermore, for each particular experience, we can state its identity conditions by reference to the particular subject which has it. So the mm-hmm. idea here is, so just to give you an analogy, um, Suppose that there's a certain type of, of event, which are deaths. Mm-hmm. So, there, so there's lots of different deaths. And we can, we can tell two deaths apart by reference not only to the time they occur and perhaps to their causes, but also to the person or the, or the animal undergoing the death, that is to say, the one who dies. So in other words, we can speak of the death of Caesar as distinct mm-hmm. from the death of someone else who died in Rome at, that very t- at exactly the same time. These are two distinct deaths and we can distinguish between them because they have distinct um they happen to distinct entities to caesar on the one hand and to some other um poor unfortunate on the other hand so the idea is that we can apply the same thought to particular experiences so if you're having a headache which feels Mm -hmm. a, a certain way and i'm having a headache which feels exactly the same way nonetheless there are two distinct headaches here and we work that out by saying that there are two distinct subjects here. So okay. you can roll all that together and say that what, what we have here is, is a view in which this, the, when we speak of the, the self as a substance, we at least mean that the self is first relative to its experiences. Okay, that, that makes so sense. That's, that's, that's the very minimal um, um, commitment. And as I say, there's then there are then further, more finicky metaphysical questions to be asked. But I think if you could establish or provide good arguments for those that cluster of claims, that would be a good mm-hmm. day's work. And I, I just want to say one other thing before we continue. Um, so it just goes back to the idea that are we are we proposing some sort of substance dualism? So, so far I've been talking about the substance side of things, and I, mm-hmm. I haven't really said, and 
it is important to note that while I do think there are reasons to take substance dualism seriously, the idea of the self as a substance that I've just been putting forward or I've just been outlining does not itself involve a commitment to dualism. Because for all I've said, the self, the substance, the thing which has the experiences could turn out to be a physical system or a biological system. So for instance, it could turn out to be an animal of a certain sort. Okay. So there, there will so, then be like questions of like how, how those two uh, or, or how the physical system leads to these mental um, properties or leads, leads to this, this um, self substance, this subjective substance, because unless you think that like, right, the whole universe has subjective substance attached to it as panpsychists will argue then you'd have to explain why certain systems generate this subjective state of being um now before before we're going to get to talking about that certainly though in terms of like the, the possible concerns with this kind of view but i want to like maybe back up even like we're always having to back up in these metaphysics conversations and explain more concepts but i want to explain a little bit why these questions about substance matter why they were a big deal for folks um like descartes and such and why i think like it's fallen out of favor a little bit in as like physics has sort of stepped in where metaphysics was um doing things and like significantly advanced our knowledge about the the nature of what might actually um be out there right so substance as a concept it seems to me to be really important because we're concerned with the persistence conditions and the like spatio-temporal conditions of certain things like you were saying with death earlier right we want to talk about why caesar's death is different from my death why my pain is different from your pain um etc and we often there there you know so and so what people have eventually argued out is that like you're saying there has to be some sort of underlying substance that is separate from the the temporary qualities that that flow across the substance in such a way and that we can make reference to that substance as the thing that is unifying all of these that explains why this bundle is me versus that bundle is you or something like that um but then of course the problems emerge you know what is the nature of that substance if it's not the properties does it have any properties what do those properties look like and obviously y'all y'all work on that some so maybe um let's try to dive a little bit into um what is the nature of the substance that y'all are talking about here um you say in in the material that um you're you're rejecting a view of the substance as what we call a bare substratum, right? So a substance without any properties in itself. Um, and you also say that each substance has essential properties, but is not identical with those properties. Rather, it is the individual that has them. And so I'm, I'm curious, um, how is this distinct from like neutral monism or a view that there are there is just one substance and everything and it has all kinds of different um, properties? And how can we sort of locate and talk about this substance that you all have in mind with reference to entities like Caesar or myself? Sorry if that was a bit of a big question. It is. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot in there. Um, we might need a second podcast. Um, <laughs> but let me let me podcasts. just let me just try and address um, at least some of that. And so, okay. So I think the bare substratum idea is a nice contrast. So the, so. The bare substratum idea, I mean, and this, you know, this might be a slightly um, caricatured version of it, but the idea is that it is something 
which we understand only insofar as it plays a certain role. And its role is to bear different properties. That's mm-hmm. pretty much it. We, 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 there's pretty much nothing else we can say about it or nothing else positive we can say about it And at any rate. It is something which we postulate as underlying different properties. So the idea is if you take a, a glass and you, you say the glass has different properties, it has the property of being made of glass, it has a certain shape property, it has a certain weight property, it has a certain texture property and so on. Mm-hmm. The idea is that we postulate that underneath all these properties, there is something which in some sense binds them together and underlies them all, which is not itself a further property of the glass, but is this substratum. Mm-hmm. So the glass, when we, when, we, when, we, when we metaphysically analyze it, we find that there are various, the various properties it has, and there's also the bare substratum, which is not itself a property, a further property, and does not ha- itself have a nature. It is rather a, a kind of a, a mysterious X that goes underneath, and that mm-hmm. then these these properties are, are fitted onto. And I mean, intuitively, I find that a very strange way of thinking, and I, and I think it's produced by asking a certain sort of question. It's produced by taking an object like a, like a glass and saying, okay, we can talk about the glass, and we can we can distinguish at least in thought. We can distinguish the glass from its different properties. We can say there's the glass and there's the property of being of, of having a certain shape and having a certain weight and so on. And then the thought asks, well, what is the glass itself apart from these properties? And one answer is that the glass itself is nothing. And that is a bundle theory of the glass, that the, the glass is nothing but this particular collection of properties. And the alternative, or so so people thought, and we're talking now about going back to the um, going back as far as Locke and 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 um, more recent thinkers uh, thinkers in the twentieth century, is that there's the properties and there is something else, but it's this substratum, this thing of which we know nothing. And my what I want to say is that well, the question rests on a mistaken premise because the thought is well, if you if you if you could delete the properties, what would be left over? What would, what, would, what would be there underneath the properties, as it were? And what I want to say is, well, some of these properties can be deleted in the sense that they are accidental properties. But it may well be that there are some which cannot be deleted because they are essential. The glass mm-hmm. could not exist without having these properties. So it's so we can distinguish in thought, we can draw a conceptual distinction between the glass as the, the thing which has the properties and each of its properties, even the essential ones, but it's a mistake to think that we can we could um, delete all of the properties and actually have something left over. Rather, the glass is the propertyed individual. Okay. So and so and then, what, and then, then just, we just, sorry. Yeah, ahead, sorry. So I was just going to say that, of course, it might turn out that a glass is not a substance because a glass um, is not, you know, it's not a fundamental entity, baby. It's 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 mm. um, it's it's obviously made up of of um, of various molecules. Um, we're arranged jumping ahead of the lightning round now. No, I, we understand glasses don't exist. But but, fine. but the idea the idea is that um, the, the 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 guiding thought is that there will be some entities which um, you know cannot be analyzed in that way, in the way that the glass can be analyzed into its into its molecules, and for these entities we can say that you know what they are is they are substances. They are propertyed individuals which are fundamental and the the hypothesis we are putting forward is that we can think of subjects of experience in this way that they are natured property individuals and 
when you say that they're when you said that they have a nature of their property, you mean they have certain essential properties, um, which properties which are in some sense definitive of entities of that kind. So then, how do we give an account of their persistent conditions, um, like for a normal for for a self, right? For my subjective perspective, do we can we give any account of when it really does stop being me? Um, is it you know, like so so traditionally main you know, major versions of, of the persistence of the self have been things like, you know, the experience of one phenomenal first person perspective over time or something like that. Or, um but it seems like y'all were also skeptical of things like a mental capacities view of the self, where it doesn't seem like you're just saying, you know, my capacity to have the same sentient experiences is what determines who I am. So um, does your view end with any kind of persistence conditions that we can sort of get a hold of from anything other than the first person subjective perspective? Yes, no, that's a really good question. Um, so what I think I would be inclined to say is that your capacities, your mental capacities, so your capacity to have different experiences, but also your capacity, for instance, to, um, to act in certain ways, your capacities to think certain thoughts, these capacities, you can have them, first of all, without exercising them. So you can you can have a capacity to have certain experiences, even though you're not at that moment having experiences of that kind. And it may be that you can um, exist as a subject of experiences without having any experiences at that time. So, for instance, if you're this is, you know, it's a certain amount of speculation here, but it's, it's thought that maybe if you're in a dreamless sleep or maybe if you're in a coma. So. One way to look at the at the persistence of of the self is that it's a matter of um, mental links or psychological continuities. So it's a matter of another another way to look. So the so the idea is that um, the really crude way of thinking about it is that if you can remember having had um, previous experiences, and of course there's a, there's a there's a lot of complications and and extra um, gadgets you can build into that view. Another another way to think of it is in terms of bodily continuity, mm -hmm. and and a third way is to think of it in terms of what you might call phenomenal continuity, where. You're, you persist as long as you have uh, an unbroken stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that your experiences, there aren't gaps between them, rather they flow into each other. And this is so, so this is the idea that, we, that, that people describe in, in terms of the metaphor of the stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And if there are such things, if, if it is possible um, for us to have dreamless sleeps, then this raises a, a big problem with the idea of um, understanding the self's persistence in, ter in, the, in, the, in terms of the stream of consciousness, because it looks like there will be gaps in the stream of consciousness. Um, there's a gap which begins when you fall asleep if you're not dreaming, and then and then um, you, you, you wake up um, a few hours later, and the thought is that, well, you didn't cease to exist in the meantime, even if you weren't having any experiences. So what I'm saying is that these are options which are have been explored, and some of them have been explored in great and um, you know over elaborate detail. And an alternative view, which I think um, the people in the project are, are are all attracted to, or at least want to take seriously, is the idea that we cannot give a positive account of the persistence of a subject in other terms. In other words, the persistence of the subject is is something fundamental. So, mm -hmm. so the idea here is that, um, if, you know, if you think of it in terms of mental capacities, for instance, well, it's true that 
if I have a certain capacity at time one and I have the very same capacity at a later time, time two, then it may be true that I must exist at time one and at time two. But the idea is that we cannot say what it is for me to exist across time by reference to my having the same capacity. Because mm -hmm. on the contrary, my having the same capacity at different times depends upon and is analyzed by my existing at different times. And the idea is that my existing at different times, my, my persisting through time, may be something which cannot itself be further analyzed. Yeah, and I'm sympathetic to this. Um, I've been reading a bunch about like subjective versus objective, and I'm increasingly sort of sympathetic that like what we're talking about with the self is a, a sort of subjective concept, and what we're talking about with um, all of the other things in the universe are objective concepts, and that the subjective can't be sort of effectively reduced to the objective. I'm curious if that's if you see it in similar kinds of terms. So, for example, like you say regarding mental capacities in particular, you say that uh, it, that the self has to be, if it's going to be embodied in space and time, it involves a kind of unique perspective on their own experience that I can confirm that I am the same self and that that, that unique perspective can't be reduced to the functional terms, um, which sounds to me like a bit of a shot at like the Dennett folks. Do you want to talk maybe a little bit about why you're unsympathetic, if, if at all, to the like those reductionist views that say um, consciousness is just the um, disposition to respond in certain to certain stimulus with certain outputs, for example. So what I'd say is that, well, first of all, consciousness does involve that disposition, it seems to me, so, or at least many conscious states do. So, so you know, the classic example is of, is of a pain, so a creature in pain, I'm quite happy to say, is thereby disposed to behave in certain ways. So the question is whether that's all that pain involves. Mm -hmm. And and I'm speaking just on behalf of myself now. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I think there's a great, and it's, it's maybe a bit underappreciated, the, um, the idea that maybe we don't know the answer to these questions. So, so I, mm -hmm. I just don't know whether a, a, um, a physicalist account of, of experiences. So a physicalist account might say, for instance, that given a certain arrangement of physical entities or physical and physical events and physical processes, where physical here might include, for instance, neural events and neural processes. So given those experiences must occur. And that's, mm -hmm. sort of, that's a kind of a standard way of thinking about physicalism. And that may be right, as far as I know. Um, but it may also, you know, but it is, it is also a piece of speculation. Physicalism is not itself a scientific theory. It's a certain philosophical interpretation, which is to some degree based on the results and the and the the um, widely accepted theories, scientific theories. But I think I think of it as as not not itself a scientific theory, but it's more like a, a metaphysical stance one takes. And I I want to stress the value of keeping these kind of questions open, of saying that well. So I would be reluctant to say that, you know, there is a knockout argument against physicalism or there's a, there's a knockout argument against a, a um, being able to reduce experiences to um, some sorts of physical or functional processes. But we should also keep open the possibility that maybe they cannot be so reduced. So the approach that I like to take is to say, well, let's let's look at the experiences themselves Mm -hmm. And let's consider them in particular with, with respect to their subjects. So the basic thought is that 
as I said earlier, an experience is like something for someone, it's subject. Mm-hmm. And let's look at that relation, the relation between experiences and their subjects, and let's look in more detail at the nature of the subject. And we'll do that to some extent, at least, independently of asking the question of whether physicalism is correct. That's now, I say, to some, I, I say to some extent, because there are views of the subject which probably do entail that physicalism is false, and there probably are views of the subject which entail that physicalism is correct. Mm, so, but the idea, I, I, the thing that I'm most interested in doing is exploring, work, working out the possibilities, working and, you know, trying to say, look, can we come up with a, a reasonably systematic, a reasonably detailed description of the subject, of, um, of how it has experiences, of um, if it has experiences, does it have to have a, um, a special, unique awareness of the experiences? So I, th- I think all of these are um, are very much live questions. And to a certain extent, you can you can delve into those questions while putting aside, at least temporarily, the question of whether physicalism is correct or not. Okay. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So let's, I think we've flogged the this, uh, substance-ish question quite enough. Let's move on maybe to the second question that y'all consider, which I think might be a little more obscure what the import is. Um, so you, ta- you say that you're, you're curious about whether entities which are subjects are essentially subjects. What is the sort of importance of them being essentially subjects or not? What would follow or not follow from things breaking one way or the other in this case? Right. So um, the thought here is that, okay, so so the, the, the view that we would like to explore is that um, subjects are essentially um, subjects. So if something is a subject, then it, then it is essential to that thing that it is a subject. And one very crude way to put that is that it is not possible that that thing could cease to be a subject and continue to exist. Mm. So if you think of being a subject as, at very least, having the capacity to have experiences, then it's mm-hmm. and then on the view we're putting forward, it is not possible for something to have that capacity and then mm-hmm. cease to have that capacity and continue to be a subject. And the rival view and our family of views would say that that is possible. So I'll give you I'll give you a very a very um, straightforward example on the view we're considering. So if, mm-hmm. suppose you think that the capacity to have experiences is, is, is in some, suppose you, you, you make the assumption that it, is, it requires a certain amount of biological and functional complexity. Mm-hmm. So the thought That's is that we're embodied. Yeah. yeah, the thought is that we're embodied and so our, um, as in I say we, as in subjects are embodied and they're having experiences and their, their ability to have experiences depends upon a certain biological structure or setup. In the in the in their body, so the thought is that we can distinguish, on the one hand, the existence of the subject from the existence of the organism in which it's embodied, and that, so the, the very basic idea here is that. So suppose you, suppose you think that in order to be capable of having experiences, the subject must have a body which has a certain who, whose neurons are connected in a certain way. Mm-hmm. If you take that idea seriously, then then it's very natural to say the following, that the subject of experiences which you are did not come into existence at the same time as the organism 
to which you, you belong or which, which you have came into existence. It came into existence later. It came into existence at a prob, you know, most likely, and this is, this is a, a certain amount of speculation, it came into existence much later on in your mother's pregnancy. It came into mm-hmm. existence maybe in, maybe, maybe in, the, in, the, in the third trimester um, when your fetus um, um, developed sufficient neural complexity um, that it's capable right. of having of of, of of feeling of, of of feeling pain, for instance, because feeling pain is usually the stand-in for for having experiences. Because I suppose it's generally assumed that it's a very very basic or primitive form of experience. And correlatively, it may be that if you undergo later on in life a catastrophic damage to your central nervous system, mm-hmm. you as a subject may cease to must, may cease to exist, even though the living organism may continue. Mm-hmm. So that so 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 the idea is that if subjects are essentially subjects, then and given certain other you know independently plausible assumptions, the kind of scenario I've just described is possible. Whereas on the 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 alternative view would be that you are an organism of a certain sort, mm-hmm. and in that case, you came into existence whenever your whenever this organism did, and so that might be conception or it might be a little bit later, depending on your view. But what happened then when, you, when your organism developed a certain level of neural complexity is not that a new entity, the subject, came into existence. Rather, it's that the organism acquired a certain status. Mm-hmm. It became a subject in the sense that it became capable of itself having experiences. So the, the way to understand the importance of the question is that if the entities which are subjects are not essentially subjects, then being a subject becomes something like a status, which an entity can acquire and potentially can lose. So the, the, the kind of the, 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 the toy comparison here is with, with, with being a student. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, someone can be a student, so someone can start being a student at a certain point of their life and they can cease being a student a bit later on, but their, their becoming a student is, well, it's never, the same as they're coming into existence. And it's it's only very rare, it's on quite rare occasions that they cease to be a student only when they die. Right. So this seems a little slippery to me um, because, so it sounds like, it makes sense that what you're saying is, look, the, the mere capacity to have um, subjective experience does not make you a subject, right? So like you might, um, you know, in your mother's womb or something, right, be developing a central nervous system, but until it's kind of clicked on and you start having experiences, it sounds like you're saying at that point you are a subject and you are a subject that is essentially tied to those experiences. So if you got to a point in your life where you were, um, no longer able to have those experiences once the capacities had kicked on, then you would no longer exist um, in that situation. That still feels a little to me like a, a a more sophisticated sort of version of the kind of you are the stream of consciousness, right? Making allowances for gaps and things. You are sort of the the unifying entity, whatever it is, that is persisting as long as it seems like the unifying entity is persisting, right? But that then feels maybe a little bit circular. Do y'all, do y'all worry at all about the circularity of some of these sort of accounts? Well, we no, you do, and, and you're quite right to point to the danger that um, we'll try to set out to to give an account of the of the, of the subject um, and. 
you know, which in some sense, you know, and we, we would hope that it would be able to shed light on, on the nature of experiences, but it might end up that we just end up um, in some way defining the subject in terms of its experiences. So, but I, I so I can't answer that the danger, oh, the danger of the circularity in one go, but right. I can say something about, about the specific case we're discussing. So the, th- the, the suggestion I'm putting forward is that it's not that the, the subject exists only when it's having experiences. So that's that's a quite controversial view. It's a view that, that plenty of people have have, um, have believed, but it's it's not a view that I feel strongly attached to. In fact, I'm I'm inclined to be quite skeptical about it. Mm-hmm. So the the thought is not that you come into existence only when a certain nervous system first gives rise to an experience. The view is that you come into existence when a certain nervous system develops to the point that it is capable of giving rise to existence. So, so one way that I like to think about it is in terms of emergence, which is a, a kind of a, a, mm-hmm. a, a, a once, a bit like substance and, and substantialism, a once extremely unfashionable notion, which is now very fashionable again. So the, the basic idea behind emergence is that, or, or the, the kind of emergence that I'm interested in, which is sometimes called strong emergence or ontological emergence, mm-hmm. is that, Physical systems themselves, when they when, when physical parts are combined in a certain way, at a certain point, new, um, categorically new properties, properties which are different in kind mm-hmm. to the properties of the, of the physical parts, will be instantiated. And they will be instantiated because of the combination of the physical parts plus the existence of certain laws of nature, laws of nature, which state that if certain physical things are combined in a certain way, then these new properties will be instantiated. So that, that's that's a that's a that's a, a very um, kind of cartoonish gloss on emergence. But the the spin on emergence, which I'm interested in, is the following idea that there are certain laws uh, of nature such that if physical things and, and physical here being including um, possibly neural things like neural events and neural processes, if they are combined in a certain way, then not only will fundamentally new properties be instantiated, but new individuals will come into being. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. that new individual, that new that individual exists, certainly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, so I that, appreciate that you individual that would be would be that new individual will be an emergent um, individual. Would be an emergent individual, an emergent. Um, you know, we, we we can call it a substance. And the thought the thought is that. So the difference, the diff, the, the 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 contrast then is the idea that is 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 the following two descriptions of the case. So one description is when your fetus, its nervous system reaches a certain level of complexity, a new entity comes into existence, one which is distinct from the fetus but is very closely related to it, and one which is in fact a subject which is capable of having experiences. The other view is that once the fetus reaches a certain level of neural complexity, the fetus itself becomes capable of having experiences. So on the one view, the subject literally is the fetus. Mm -hmm. On the other view, the subject and the fetus are distinct, although they are obviously going to be very closely related. Right, so that then you are leaning back more towards a, like again, it feels like a kind of dualism, which I'm not. I don't mean that in a pejorative kind of way at this point. Like I think I'm I'm increasingly sympathetic to to views similar to this. Um, 
So let's let's maybe shift gears here a little bit. And, and there's a couple of sort of related questions that that might help sort of um, give give folks a sense of how this this uh, view is applicable. So one hard problem that I often get into when talking about the hard problem is uh, questions about things like trees, right? So there's this question of like where on the um, evolutionary spectrum does the level of complexity that we need for emergence uh, arise? And what does that mean about the nature of trees, the moral status of trees, and things like that, for example? Do you, do you think that trees are subjects? Do you think that trees have moral status whether or not they're subjects? What are your takes on these kind of issues? So I'm inclined to say that trees are not subjects. Mm-hmm. Now, I say I'm inclined to say that because I... I I don't think one can conclusively rule out that um, that trees are subject. But what I would say is the following, that in our everyday experience, we encounter entities that we, without thinking, regard us as, as having experiences. These, of course, are standardly um, other humans, but, but often um, other animals of various sorts. And there's interesting questions as to why we do that. But nonetheless, the fact of the matter is that we do. And the mm-hmm. fact of the matter is that in, in, in our everyday lives, we very comfortably um, can distinguish between things that in some broad sense of the word appear, they appear to be subjects, they appear to be having experiences and and things which do not. And trees, I think, pretty conclusively fall into the latter category. So I would say mm-hmm. there's no pressure based on the way things appear to think that trees are, experience, are, are subjects of experience. I'm not aware of any other really robust um, let's say biological or chemical findings, which 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 would suggest that trees are substances or trees are subjects. I am aware that there's there's been a recent um, upsurge in the idea that plants are intelligent. Yes, and, and but communicate I think, in various kinds of ways. But yeah, go ahead. Right. Um, so 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 it is possible that what we'll find is that first of all trees and other plants display intelligence of a certain sort and that 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 intelligence is at least in in cases like other other animals or humans that intelligence is correlated very strongly with certain sorts of experience so that would provide some sort of um defeasible evidence that trees have Mm -hmm. experiences and i don't want to rule that out completely but i am a certain skeptical of it Um, partly because the notion of intelligence that's being employed here it seems to me is an extremely loose one and is very much bound to behaving in certain ways or adapting in certain ways to the conditions around one. And while I certainly don't want to rule out the idea that um, that kind of intelligence um, does require phenomenal consciousness, it just doesn't seem to me to be obvious that it does. So I think there's a large burden of proof. Even if you think that trees are intelligent in this very broad sense of intelligence, there's there's still a very big step from that to the thought that it's it's plausible or let alone theoretically required that um, that trees have experiences. So so my attitude is it's 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 skeptical and, you know, kind mm-hmm. of my, what I want to say is show me the evidence and and then then I'll then I'll, I'll take it seriously. So in the in the background, there is a very interesting question, which is to do with how can we tell of other entities yeah. whether or not they're having experiences. I was just going to ask what, what features you would let, you tend to point to, yeah. Well, the, the first answer is that there's no foolproof method here. So sure. this is, we're very much in the, in, in the realm of what's defeasible. So so how would you go about it? So so the standard examples arise when you consider um, other animals because more or less everyone thinks that um, 
higher animals, um, apes and dolphins, let's say, um, enjoy conscious experiences. Mm-hmm. I won't, you know, and I would say most people would accept that when, when you get down to a certain level of simplicity, let's say amoeba, for instance, that there's much less pressure to say that they enjoy experiences. So, of course, there are panpsychist views, but the, the panpsychist views are very much driven, as far as I can see, the panpsychism is very much driven by very high level theoretical arguments mm-hmm. um, in the philosophy of mind. So I don't see panpsychists or the panpsychists that, that I'm aware of appealing to any sort of experimental evidence or even any, any evidence drawn from the, the best theories of biology or chemistry or physics. It's very much theoretically driven arguments. Mm-hmm. And we can, we, we can come back to those. But the idea is that setting no, those I, aside. I definitely agree with you. And uh, yeah. yeah, for sure. So, so setting, those, setting those considerations aside, there's very little else speaks in favor of considering amoeba. To be to be to be conscious, and then the question arises: Well, what about all the cases in the middle? And here, I think what we have to appeal to are things like um, how sophisticated is their behaviour, mm-hmm. how how similar are they in the evolutionary tree or structure to 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 cases where it's pretty clear that we can attribute conscious. And for instance, look, you examine the functionings of their nervous system if they have one. How sophisticated are their nervous systems? So you're using a number of what are really methodological rules of thumb. Mm-hmm. And they're fallible, mm-hmm. and they're they're never going to get us to um, to really secure knowledge, but they do provide pointers. So the idea is that the more you learn about, for instance, fish or birds or shellfish, um, you, you're you're accumulating what is at least some reason to think mm-hmm. that it's an open question whether there's consciousness here, and some reason to think that maybe there's not. So I mean, in, in my case, for instance. Um, I'm a vegetarian for mm-hmm. for ethical reasons, and so, in a sense, this is a real question. So, um, right, how I, we treat I'll give things an matters. <laughs> right, how we treat things matters. But I'll give you an example that um, a couple of years ago there was a, a kind of an international food fair. In I was living in Helsinki. There was, there was an international food fair there, and one of the delicacies on display was it was I can't remember the exact the exact insect, but it was an insect that was fried hmm. and. And this apparently is a kind of a burgeoning industry, and people are putting this forward as a possible solution to to, to problems of, of of global malnutrition. The idea yeah. is that, in principle, insects are a source of, of of nutrition. And I tasted the insect, and it was on some kind of rice cake, and it was you know it wasn't wasn't um, I, I didn't go back for seconds, but it wasn't <laughs> awful. And I was asked. I remember discussing this with, with with my nephew, who asked me, "Well, you know, you're you're a vegetarian for moral reasons. How can you justify eating eating insect?" And I suppose I don't have a conclusive reason to think that mm-hmm. it's okay to eat insects. But if if your main reason for being a vegetarian, which which mine is, is to do with the the suffering involved in the production of of meat and and, uh, and where meat includes includes fish and fowl as well, if that's your main reason, then the problem isn't so much eating animals. Mm-hmm. The problem is eating which causes such suffering. Right. And you, you if eat you think grown if, meat. Well, exactly. No, exactly. I would have. I would have no problem eating lab-grown meat. And mm-hmm. I suppose, in pr- if I'm being really ethically rigorous, I'd have no problem eating roadkill as well. Um, but of course, I don't want to do that to create a market for roadkill. Um, a kind of a perverse incentive for motorists. There are, to there are parts of the country where that is that is more of a thing. Um, not in Switzerland. Um, okay. So the thought is, well, well, we have. There's some reason, you know, defeasible reasons to think that insects do not are not sentient. 
And if mm-hmm. they're not sentient, then to a large extent, the reasons that lead me to vegetarianism just don't apply in this case. So, I'm, I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that that's a fully worked out um, mm-hmm. ethical come scientific position, but 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 I, I hopefully that makes clear the, the kind of the way I would go in seeking to answer these kind of questions. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't fault you for it being in, in any way unsatisfying in the sense that I think that it is the unsatisfying position that folks in our in our position often have to take with regard to this kind of question. Um, so then, you know, maybe you maybe you'll have a similar kind of answer in the other direction. But I'm curious if you feel like there are hard differences here. Um, the other big problem that seems to weigh in, in all of this is, you know, will we at some point build an AI that is a subject of experience? And what do you think about um, the developments? And like, also, what do you think about the fact that we will probably sooner create an entity that fairly well mimics a sentient being? Um, and what, what what does that mean for us as a species? Okay, so, I mean... I mean, there's a, I, I can't remember. I, I, I'm afraid I can't attribute this comment to anyone, but 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 somebody did say it. I remember. I remember thinking it was a. It's a good point. Um, we already have created um, sentient um, intelligences. Um, it, it usually, standardly involves a man, a woman, and a dark and a dark room. Although, of course, other other options are available. But of course, the of course the the, the real suggestion is, can we build a machine? Can we can we um, taking a broadly speaking computational functionalist approach? Can we build an can we build an artifact? Is the way of putting it. Can we build an artifact which either is itself a sentient being or um, from which a sentient being emerges? I think that's mm-hmm. that's the be- that's a better way to put it. And on my view, I think that's very much an open question um, because, as I say, the, the view that I'm attracted to is that is that um, subjects are individuals which emerge when certain physical entities are put together in a certain way. Now, the only cases we have where we can be very, very confident that this happens are cases involving biology. So there are case, particular cases involving um, nervous systems rooted in organisms where the nervous system has a certain um, uh, capacity and the organism is also, is also behaving in a certain way and, and embedded in its environment. But that does leave open, it seems to me, that, that you could create, achieve similar results using artifacts. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't follow from that that um, you can do so with a, with a system which can be defined purely in computational terms. So it doesn't follow from what I've just said that I'm committed to some something like um, mm-hmm. what the, the old-fashioned idea of strong AI. But in a broader sense of creating an artificial subject, I think that is an open question. Um, of course, there's a really, a re- the really tough Accompanying so what, so the question we're at, the question I've been discussing so far is a metaphysical one. Mm-hmm. Is it possible that um, such such a device could be created? But of course, there's a very tough epistemological question, which is that how would we know? Right. Even if we did, even if we had that achieved was my next it, question, yeah. right? So this is where the idea of of, of a system mimicking behavior um, takes us towards. So I think this. I'm going to punt with that one. I'm going to say that I don't know, but I think there's there's two, um, to some extent, independent variables to keep in mind. So one of them is is to do with how do you understand behavior? Because one way you could understand behavior is in terms of something very roughly like physically observable or verifiable movements and maybe functioning, something like that. So mm-hmm. you could talk about behavior in terms of if, if, you had, if you had a hominoid robot, it behaves, its behavior might involve it's moving its arms at a certain pace 
or you might talk about walking as a certain sort of behavior. Right. Um, and you can, you can pretty much just look and see that the thing is walking. But if you think about our activities and our actions, you've got a much more interesting and richer notion of behavior. So we play games, we converse, we discuss politics, we put forward opinions and challenge other people's opinions, and so on and so forth. And so the question is, when you're asking the question, well, can we build a machine which could mimic our behavior? It's quite important, I think, to distinguish um, the first notion of behavior that I described from this richer notion of, of, of activities. Because, of course, it's going to be very, very hard to, um, or it might, you know, if, if the robot is sufficiently sophisticated, it might be quite hard to say whether it is only mimic or mimicking human behavior in the first sense or whether it is actually mimicking human behavior in the second sense. Um, so you could have a machine, for instance, that that utters sentences, and if those sentences were uttered by a human, we would unthinkingly and un unhesitatingly say that this is this person, first of all, that it's a person doing the uttering, and secondly, that this person is engaging in a certain sort of verbal behavior, is, for instance, mm -hmm. um, defending a, a particular position. But if the machine does it, we might be a little bit, we might not be sure. We might think, well, the machine might actually have an opinion, which it's mm -hmm. putting forward, but it is also possible that it's not doing any such thing, that it's simply it's simply producing a string of uh, phonemes, for instance. Yeah, I'm, I'm so, incredibly, increasingly pessimistic about the idea that we will be able to answer this question at all, because it seems like, um, you, you know, e even incredibly rich behavior is not in itself proof of um, sentience at this point. We've shown that, like, you know, a, a computer can play Go, which is a, a highly intuitive, complex game, um, without being at all sort of a subject of awareness, I think I think we I think we're right to agree that like um, you know uh, the Go computer um, is not a subject of awareness at this point. And the the gap, the big problem is that unlike with apes and other animals, where we know that they arose out of the same evolutionary process that we did, you know, when we know for a fact that the AI was built to mimic behavior and not. You know, there there isn't some module that we figured out how to build to put in it that's like the the subjective experience module or something, right? Like we'll have fairly good reason, it seems like, to still be skeptical that they are actually subjects long after they can argue as if they are subjects. So I think I want to say two things in that. So so, so the first the first thing is the second point that I was going to make earlier, mm -hmm. and it's that. I spoke about in different independent variables. So one of them is, is a kind of a thin notion of behavior versus a, a, a richer notion of activities that we can engage in. But the other one is the, the other variable is, so you spoke about sentience and I understand sentience as, as something like being able to have um, phenomenal experiences. So there's something it's like for you to engage in certain activities. And I think it is an open question as to which activities we engage in require sentience and which do not. And that's an interesting question. So, so some of them do, you know, pretty much by, you might say, pretty much by definition or close enough to it. So maybe maybe wine tasting does. Um, but others, it's just not so clear um, whether it's, it's you know, you think of, let's say, I don't know, going for a walk um, mm -hmm. or or driving a truck to, to, to use a, a, a well-known example. I think it was Armstrong had this example of a, of a truck driver driving long distances who kind of comes to with a start and realizes that 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 um, they've been driving for a long time, but that they couldn't remember anything that had happened in the last in the, in the previous few minutes. So it's at least possible to argue back and forth as to whether the activity of driving a truck or going for a walk requires um, one to have experiences or not. So even so that so the point the reason I'm saying this is that even if 
we're willing to say that a robot is capable of, well, let's say, for instance, driving a truck or engaging in some other sort of rich activity, mm-hmm. that in itself might not answer the question of sentience. But j- just one other thing to say then is that my suspicion, and this is this is this this is a purely, um, a, I think it's a culturally informed suspicion mm-hmm. rather than a kind of a worked out philosophical view. And I say culturally informed because it's it's kind of based on thinking about um, depictions of intelligent machines in science fiction. Um, my suspicion is that. If machines are developed, if there are art, if artifacts are developed, which are capable of living alongside us, and are capable of mimicking our behaviors to the extent that we we begin to unthinkingly deal with them as though they were subjects mm-hmm. of experience, I suspect that's that doesn't prove, of course, that they are subjects of experience, but it might be the way in which the problem goes away. And the reason I say that is because there's a certain way of thinking about experience such that it, it gives rise to a problem of other minds, a problem of, so, so I can know from my own um, example that I myself am conscious, but I'm not so sure about you and I'm not so sure about someone else. And so there's a way of thinking about experience which generates that problem. But in in the real world, that problem just doesn't arise because um, that sort of skepticism requires a certain sort of, of philosophical thinking. To, you, have to, you have to think yourself into being skeptical in that way. Whereas mm-hmm. what actually happens is that you're raised um, from pretty much soon after birth. You're interacting with other people. Um, you know, so, so an infant will, will, will be interacting with its caregivers in all sorts of ways. It will be, um, it will be responding to them by smiling. Perhaps it will be. Um, mm-hmm. There'll be shared attention. There'll be. There'll be. There'll be. Um, you know. You might. You might. You might pull up the fingers, and the infant pulls back, or push the push leg, and, the, and 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 they push back. And so, from 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 before you're even able to think about these things, you are unthinkingly in an attitude where you regard other other things as um, as 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 having experiences and as mm-hmm. as socially interacting with you. So if we get to the point where machines are able to interact with us like that, then I suspect that the problem we're talking about it will still be a theoretical, an interesting theoretical problem, but it will become clearer that it's a theoretical problem produced by certain philosophical assumptions. Yeah, I mean, I still feel like in in that kind of space. I, I agree that psychologically, you know, like I already watched the um, Boston Dynamics videos and already feel like I'm angry at the human beings that are hitting the robots with sticks. So, like, I totally agree with you that I'm going to be hardwired to treat them that way as soon as they start to talk that way. Um, but I don't think that that's necessarily a good thing. I'm concerned that there are various harms that will arise from coming to see AI as you know sentient and so morally um of a same status as human beings before it's actually the truth that they are like that but i i think it's you know this is a, this is a really hard thing that that you know isn't going to be solved uh immediately and I, I realize we're getting close to over time here so um i definitely want to have you back on at some point to talk about because we didn't get to even the back half of your research questions and I, or even like some of the methods oh, sure. and stuff so maybe we can um touch base down the line a little bit and see how the research is going or something like that no that'll be great um, but in the meantime you can't escape without doing the lightning round so 
Okay, the lightning lightning round. Round. So if folks who are not familiar, right, at the end of the show, I like to give folks a list of things, and I want to know whether those things are real or not real. There's no hedging. There's no defining of what those things mean. And, yeah, that's pretty much the way this torture works. Are you ready to... Um, I'm as ready as I'll ever be. Okay. So I've got a new system now for priming my subjects. Um, I have to first ask, do you believe that anything is real? I do. Okay. So there are some things that are real, and we're going to find out what they are. Here we go. Uh, is the external world real? Yes. Okay. Colors? Strictly speaking, don't know, but I'm inclined to say yes. Okay. Yes or no? <laughs> am, I, am I allowed to say don't know to any of these questions? Uh, no, don't know is not a right answer. Uh, phenomenal I'll go, consciousness? I'll go. <laughs> yes. Free will? Yes. Selves. Yes. Genders. I'm going to say no on that one. Okay. Races. No again. Species. I am laughably ignorant in the philosophy of biology, so I'm going to say yes in the fairly certain knowledge that i will be corrected uh, good, vigorously good. at this point luckily you're not on it. twitter so you can't get cancelled for any of this so uh morality yes rights yes knowledge yes gods no society Ooh. <laughs> the joker the clock is ticking yeah tick 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 Tick, tick, tick. I'll go with no. Mm. Numbers? Again, I really want to say don't know, but I'm going to say yes. Okay. Without mm -hmm. That's fine. Philosophy of math is hard. Uh, fictional characters? No. Holes? Holes with a W? Uh, Sorry. No, holes is in like um, a hole in, a, in the ground. Right. So holes without a W. Yes. Um, no. Chairs? No. Sandwiches? No. Science? No. Natural laws? Yes. Beauty? I'm going to stick my neck out and say yes. Oh, bold choices. I like it. Make bold choices. Uh, causality? Yes. Dharmas? I'm terribly afraid I'm going to have to confess I'm not quite sure what a dharma is. That's okay. This is for trapping the Buddhists to get them to say yes to something. It's like, um, you know, the, the qualia is a good translation in some ways. It's sort of the phenomenal atomic parts of reality in the form usually of little bits of experience. Woof. Um, I'll, I'll go. I, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> That's fine. Let's, let's say yes. Okay, great. And I'm going to add a new one to the list um, because we've talked about this topic enough. Philosophical zombies. So usually, it's, usually the question is whether they're possible yeah. um, rather than whether they're real or not. But, um, you know, I'm going to say yes. Okay. But I, I, do, I do want to say one, one quick thing about philosophical zombies if you have the view of, if you have the emergence view of subjects that I have, mm -hmm. 
then so if if you grant me that view, then I think it's quite likely that there could be philosophical zombies on the assumption that the the emergence laws, mm-hmm. the laws connecting the physical system to the to the subject which emerges, are not themselves determined by the physical laws. Fair. So granted those assumptions, I think I think zombies are are possible. But what I also want to mention is that I don't think that arguments that say we can conceive of zombies, therefore they're possible, therefore physical is false. I don't think those arguments really work. So mm-hmm. my thinking that zombies are possible is not a reason for me to upend physicalism. On the contrary, it's it's a it's a view I have <laughs> independently, which which undermines physicalism, which leads me to think that zombies might be possible. I understand. My my running argument at the moment for how philosophical zombies are real is that I think that illusionists are just philosophical zombies who are confessing. So um but yeah okay that's all right uh you survived the lightning round congratulations how do you feel? can i can i brief can i i feel <laughs> do you I feel, feel like you have to sus- <laughs> editate all of it now i i think i've got to add an editorial on this point yeah so yeah go ahead what I, I suppose what i was trying to do was interpret real as um not determined by our arbitrary choices so so not 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 mm. simply a matter of what we collectively or individually decide to be the case so the contrast would be with i mean so, so take the example of chairs the idea was that um something counts as a chair only if enough people essentially in in the right circumstances decide that it is a chair mm-hmm. very roughly mm-hmm. and now that's really crude but that's the basic idea so the thought is that if chairs you know, i'm sitting on a chair at the moment well, they're, they're, they're being chairs is subjective. Yeah. So, so the idea is that if I'm sitting on a chair at the moment and if a molecule by molecule replica of this chair was to come into existence on an uninhabited planet, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Andromeda system, that strictly speaking would not be a chair. It would be an item which we would, which is chair shaped, you might say, but it's not a chair because it doesn't have the function of being a chair and it doesn't have that function because it is not regarded as being a chair. That's the basic idea. This is good. So that's an extremely convoluted um, way of covering my ass. No, it's great. It's good for folks who are confused why we keep asking people if chairs are real when they're all clearly sitting in chairs while they're recording. Um, so, and, and, the, and, the, and the, of course, the, the correlative of that is that I'm quite happy to say that chairs exist. So I'm quite happy to say that there are things that exist that are not real in the way that I've in the way that I've defined. That's fair. Whereas one or two one or two of the items on your list, um, I'm inclined to say just don't exist at all. Like gods, for example. Yeah, gods would be the one I was thinking of there. Yeah, fair enough. Um, great. So um, thank you so much for for coming on and chatting, um, spending a little extra time with me. Do you want to let folks know where they can find your work? So I am not on Twitter, as you mentioned earlier, uh, because if I was on Twitter, they would never get me off Twitter. I'm, I'm, Tell me I'm about it. Very much. I'm very much the kind of person that I would get drawn down horrible rabbit holes. Um, so it's for my own sanity. It's a hell of a drug, for not. sure. Um, yes, and so I decided I'd, um, I would steer clear of that one. I have a website. It's um, dunnacoconnell.com, and spelling that would be rather complicated, but hopefully you can put a link to it in, in, the, uh, sure. in the show notes. Yeah, so you can find their links to various papers I've written. And um, what I might do as well is actually put up a put up a link to or a copy of the um, the project outline that we've been discussing, which contains the various the various research questions that, that, that we've been talking about in, in the show. So that would be helpful as well, I think. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's uh, so donacoconnell.com is is uh, where you can is my online presence or my main online presence. Yeah, and I highly recommend reading the summary. It's a really it's a great sort of overview of a lot of the problems that we keep um, poking at on this show. And I like it that it's a 
um, an earnest attempt to to rehabilitate the the dual as the substance dual as we could debate how much that's true but it's it feels to me like an earnest attempt to um, rehabilitate at least the substance view of the self so well hopefully not too earnest no a little bit of irreverence always goes well um, all right well thank you so much earnest yeah go ahead okay thank you for, no I was just gonna say earnest ish <laughs> uh, no thanks very much for having me on it's uh, it's been a real pleasure okay. I want to give an extra special start to a new Voidy year thanks to all our listeners and patrons out there. I feel so lucky every day that I get to do this passion project and share it with y'all, and your support makes it all possible. Uh, We've got several new patrons this month who I wanted to give a shout out to, so thanks to Trilobite Tark, thanks to Jonathan Yance-Jones, thanks to Joel Nield. And thanks to Jason Lee Baez, who's going to hopefully be a guest on the show in the near future. Um, Thank you all so much for joining. And um, as always, I want to give very special thanks to our $20 tier patrons, Jude Law. Jude Law's Canadian accent in existence makes my pussy throb. Good morning, Camp Quest. Give me those sweet, sweet utils and Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And of course, as always, extra top of the tier thanks to our uh, longest, most long-term biggest supporter, Dave Maslich. I really genuinely do appreciate all y'all. Thank you so, so much. Um, If you'd like to support the show, Please leave us a five-star rating or review on a podcast app near you. Uh, Follow us on Twitter, at ETVPod. Um, And if you do notice yourself looking forward to these episodes each week, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. It's just $4 a month, and you get our bonus book club content. Um, And most importantly, remember, you are the void, and the void is you. (laughs) 